Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. There's a guy that never bought anything in his life or has no net worth of liquidity or doesn't have good credit history. It's probably hard to get a loan. So I think that's probably a big misconception that people have that, hey, I'm buying a property. Let me just go ahead and get a loan. So I would say that's probably the most common misconception that people uh, saw yet have. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us, and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, in addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got And assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, All you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, But besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. 
So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Mark Belsky. How you doing, Mark? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great and welcome to the show and best ever listeners, you probably recognize Mark's name because he and his team are sponsors of this podcast, but more relevant than that, he's done approximately $3.5 billion in transactions. He's the managing director of Eastern Union Funding and the lead affiliate of Eastern Equity Advisors. He brings debt to deals. He helps bring equity to deals. And you can learn more at his company's website, which is in the show notes page. So with that being said, Mark, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I've been in the business about 20 years. I started off on the principal side, spent about 15, 16 years on the principal side, which as I've heard from many clients, gives me a unique perspective of really understanding how to finance deals, both on the debt and equity side. I focus primarily on middle market deals. We focus on loan sizes of $1 million up to $100 million, and then on equity of about $5 million to call it $450 million. We recently completed about $250 million of equity raised, representing over a billion dollars of real estate deals. And I probably did about another $150 million worth of debt in the last 10 months. So we're having a great year, and it's really our focus. And we do a lot of multifamily deals. We do all major food groups, but most of what we do is multifamily, I would say. Why did you switch from the principal side to the lending side? Sure. So again, more brokering than lending, but the secret is I also am still on the principal side. I saw an opportunity basically. The way it started was I saw an opportunity in the capital raising for middle market. There's a lot of big shops that are out there that raise these big, massive institutional deals. And when people are doing these smaller deals, that's syndicating deals, they go to their friends and families, etc. And I saw a niche that just wasn't being covered by anybody, which was, again, middle market equity. So while I was still buying my properties, Iris Lotowitz, who was the president of the for a long time, I approached him this idea about doing equity. And we ended up getting into it. And then over time, as the business just became larger and more busier for me than my investment business, doesn't mean I don't invest. I contract on two deals right now, actually, uh, for my own account. But as a business, I just sort more of a business than just investing. So you know, at this point, that's become my primary focus. I'm dedicated to it. I do it 18 to 20 hours a day, almost some days, and I work all the time. And again, given the fact that I am a principal and I come from the principal side, it really gives a unique perspective when I get involved in deals and I have a client and even with banks and lenders I'm in on the single deal. And one of the stories I tell all the time is when you have a real estate deal that you're buying and you need a mortgage, suppose you're buying a property for $10 million and you get a $7 million mortgage. So you can go to any mortgage broker in the country and they'll help you get that $7 million mortgage based on whatever your NOI is. What most brokers don't know is really what happens with that 7 and the $10 million. And that's where I add the most amount of value because I've done so many deals on the principal side and I own real estate myself. and I've been buying real estate for close to 20 years that I understand really how to do the deal and the equity, but more importantly, as it relates to debt as well, I'm not just pitching the bank on the NOI. I really understand the real estate transaction, how it works, what the value is, why the bank should be lending. And there are multiple stories I can share. I'm sure we don't have time for it today, where banks said no at first. And then after I was done with my pitch, I convinced them to say yes, because I really got them to understand the real estate and the transaction. I wasn't just looking at a piece of paper and taking the NOI divided by what the property can carry as far as the debt is concerned. Can you tell us one of those stories? Sure. A good example was that there's a shopping center that we did about six months ago. It went to committee and about two weeks before closing, the bank calls us up and they said they have a problem. They want to cut the loan proceeds because they thought that the center maybe couldn't perform the way they originally underwrote. So we said, 
what you're talking about, what changed, et cetera, et cetera. The long story short was that it was a grocery and shopping center, and the, the grocer was doing, I think it was something like $400 a square foot over 50,000 square foot space. And the lease was coming up in a couple of years, in about four years. They thought it was a good store because they were doing about $25 million. Does that make sense? $25 million on 50000 is about $500 a foot. Okay. So what happened was the bank suddenly started panicking whether or not they're going to renew. We spoke to the tenant and the tenant said they're doing very well. The problem was that they were just in too much space. So because I have an owner's perspective, not just a broker looking at the numbers, I was able to convince the bank that the issue is not that they're doing $500. If they would just give back 15,000 square feet and they would do that $25 million over 35,000 square feet, they were doing over $700 a foot, which is very healthy for a grocer. So not only that, they were paying below market. So then they A, would renew their lease because they're below market. B, they would take smaller space and they have a high performing price per square foot. And C, the owner would be able to take advantage of leasing the balance of that 15,000 square feet to another tenant at a higher market rate. So we got on the phone to the chief credit officer and had to walk him through this process and explain to him how and why there's value in the center. It's not just, hey, there's a grocer that's not doing so well with a short-term lease. The grocer actually was doing really well. They just had too much space for that location. Mm-hmm. And we ended up closing the loan a couple of weeks later. When you have that conversation, how much convincing is needed? Because I imagine the actual lender, I know you're the broker, the actual lender, they tend to be fairly rigid, at least from my experience in their underwriting and how they look at things. To say the least, they're definitely rigid. So look, every bank's got their box, but at the end of the day, that's the value in having a broker. Look, we meet plenty of people along the way. Some people have brokers, some people don't. And I can tell you, sometimes I look at clients who say, oh, we go that right, and I see mistakes they make. And look, my job as a broker is to know the market and understand what happens. So for example, if I'm a principal and I'm buying a single building and I'm going direct to a bank and something comes up, I don't really have market data to provide to the lender to say, well, you did this elsewhere or another lender did this elsewhere. But as a broker, if things come up throughout a process, I can say, hold on a second lender. You know that your competitor did this. You don't want to lose the business. Why don't you match it A or B? Well, we did this on the last loan, et cetera, because we do such volume. Look, as a company, we're going to do about $5 billion this year in debt placement and close to a 1,000 deals. As I said earlier, we do middle market deals. We focus on $1 to $100 million, but our average loan size is only about $5 million. And so we do a tremendous amount of volume here. We have a lot of data to share. So when we get on the phone with a lender, we really, really know how to push all the points and the hot buttons of what we think they're interested in because we know what the market's doing. And a good example that is just recently, I'm doing a deal right now in New Jersey. It's a construction loan. And we went to a lot of lenders and we actually brought the equity to the deal as well. And the equity wanted to use some lender from another state. And at the end of the day, the lender from the other state wasn't able to understand the market as well as our lender. And the reason why we knew to go to the lender is because we knew that lender did other deals specifically already in this market. So it wasn't just throwing a dart against the wall. We knew based on knowledge that we had on another deal in this market that this lender was the one that did construction on the other deal and we were able to successfully bring that lender. And it's two partners. One partner wanted us to bring this lender and the other partner was like, oh, I have my own relationship with this other partner of state and he really pushed against it. Ultimately, he came around recognizing the value that we were able to bring. And we ended up getting a better deal with a better spread and just a better overall loan for, for the real estate deal. So again, it's a lot of market knowledge and data that we bring to the table when we speak to a banker. And many times they appreciate it. And sometimes, look, they're in the business to make loans, right? We sometimes yep. forget because they're so rigid that they're there to put out money. We assume that, hey, you know, they're a bank, they're tough, we got to put on a suit when we go to the bank. The reality is that they have to put their money out in order for them to make money. So when we were able to show them a clear pathway for them to do that in a conservative way that they can put out their money and not lose it, they're very appreciative for us. Not needing to name names, but just an example of where you said, you know, your competitor did this, and then the first group ended up doing it because their competitor did it. What would be an example of that? An example of something like that. Look, we have that literally on a daily basis when we're competing on loans. We have 
Yeah, bridge loan is a good example of, of what happens because this is balance sheet lending and people have control of their own balance sheet. So if somebody is charging a point on a deal and the other lender is charging on a half a point, then the first lender says, well, how do I win the business? Say, well, your competitor is charging on a half a point. Why don't you match it? And so that happened. It happens on equity. I'm, I'm working on a deal right now where the client can't fix raise equity and we brought it to a couple of shops and one of the shops wanted to do the deal and a second shop wanted to do the deal. The first shop was a little tough about it and he's like, hey, well, I need this, I need that. And then as soon as he found out there was some competition on the deal, he started softening up and saying, well, you know, I maybe you could do this and I maybe you could do that. So again, it happens so often that it's even hard to say. Forget about it, even giving an example. It literally <laughs> happens on a deal. What are some questions that beginning investors ask you that if you answer it now, if they're listening, then they'll have the answers. Because I know as a sponsor of this podcast, you get a lot of inquiries and some are from investors who are kind of just starting out. So what are some common questions that they ask and what are your responses? Good questions. I have to think what the most common ones are. Look, the old adage is they say, the bank never wants to lend you money when you need it. A lot of people starting out need the money and the banks don't want to lend you money. You know, Banks want to lend money that people don't really need it. This is a big problem in how the banking business works. But I think it comes as a big shock to some people that banks won't lend the money. Well, I have a property I want to buy. Well, what's your credit score? How much liquidity do you have? What's your net worth? What's your experience? I think there's this misconception that just because I'm buying real estate, I'm going to get a loan. When a bank lends, they look just as much as the borrower as they do with the property, or so on the property, because obviously they have some collateral to take back. But ultimately, if there's a guy that never bought anything in his life, or has no net worth of liquidity, or doesn't have good credit history, it's probably hard to get a loan. So I think that's probably a big misconception that people have that, hey, I'm buying a property, let me just go ahead and get a loan. So I would say that's probably the most common misconception that uh, people starting out have. And of course, you're going to ask, how do I do that? The answer is you buy small, you invest together with other people, you partner up with other people. As you know, what we've done in the past is we've introduced some of our larger clients to some of our smaller clients to help our smaller clients grow. And the main thing I can tell you is that, look, be prepared to give up. There's many people that started out and became big and didn't own everything, right? Sometimes it's better to be a small fish in a big pond. And when you're starting out, instead of owning 100% of the pie, just be prepared to give out pieces to people that are going to away. And that's how you grow. Mm-hmm. When you work with the client, what's your typical project, your sweet spot? Partially by design, partially by default, I would say is a 10 to $15 million check for a multifamily deal. So somebody buying, for example, we just closed the deal last week, a $10.1 million equity check in Tampa, Florida is a $39 million acquisition. So it was a $28 million loan connected to that. So something like that is probably right down the fairway for us. We do a lot of those. I think I was running my numbers yesterday, I think including some deals that are almost closing. I think I financed between debt and equity this year, over 6,500 units already this year. So again, we were just talking about call for a, a office building in Texas. And as I said earlier, we did a shopping center. I've done industrial deals. I'm closing at the end of the month a ground up sell storage deal in Arizona. But at the end of the day, most of what we do is multifamily, again, middle market between five and $40 million. So most of the check sizes we're doing are call it between eight and eight and $20 million. And when I say partially by design, partially by default, because like anything else in life, the more multifamily deals I do, the more assignments I get for them, the more my name gets out there. And the more assignments I do, the more I close, the more I close, the more my name gets out there and the more requests I get. And then at the end of the day, multifamily is probably the easiest asset class to understand, likely the easiest asset class to finance, and certainly the class to raise capital for. When you are looking at self-storage, multifamily, ground-up development for something else, how much of a challenge is that to your brain to switch gears from one to the other? So again, the easiest thing down the fairway, as I said earlier, is just a typical traditional multifamily type deal. But the good news is I'm doing this for a long time and I have a lot of knowledge and a lot of different type of deals. 
So I've closed office, retail, hospitality, multifamily, industrial, healthcare. I've done a lot of it over the years. Time buys experience for you. So for me, it's not such a big challenge, but it's definitely more challenging of deals. So when you're buying a retail deal versus multifamily, you got to find out what the market occupancy is, what the commission structure is, what demand is for vacant space. It matters on, obviously, what the credit history of the tenants are. You have to understand how much traffic goes in front of the building every day. The co-tenancy closes are. There's just a lot more brain damage to understand commercial deals versus multifamily deals, which is why I said what I said earlier about it probably easier. So thank God I have the experience to do that. And I've done quite a lot of deals over the years, as I said earlier. But ultimately, multifamily is still easier. But thank God I understand all of it. With the commercial deals, you use retail as an example. Would that be the most... I don't want to use the word headache, but the most in-depth research and time compared to the other types of assets, classes like industrial or storage? No, I think it's really bifurcated between commercial and multifamily because, again, even in an office building, what's the market for TI? What's the demand? good example, as I said earlier about the service building in Texas, they want to buy a building at, I don't want to get, obviously, confidential information, but they want to buy a building at X percentage occupied and they want to take it up to Y. The question is, what's the market occupancy? The market occupancy doesn't equal why. Why is it that they think they can bring it to that occupancy? And the answer is because understanding the submarket is another level of what you need to do. You need to go down and understand what the demand is. How many square feet are in the submarket? Are the buildings comparable, really? So if there's 2 million square feet in the submarket, how many square feet of this submarket is really competitive to the building they're buying? Meaning, if I strip out all the older buildings or all the buildings that have no recent CapEx upgrades in them, et cetera, et cetera. What's the real occupancy in that? So there's a lot of layers that go into even office and industrial is the same thing. So one is not more difficult than the next. They're both pretty different than multifamily collectively. Obviously, with regards to retail, you have the added target on your back with the whole retail apocalypse that people think is coming with Amazon and even Walmart going online now, all that kind of stuff. So that's just an added target. But other than that, I wouldn't say one asset class once you get into commercial is more difficult than the next. Based on your experience, what's your best advice ever for real estate investors? The number one advice I can give you as an investor, you're saying someone that's investing as an LP or someone that's syndicating deals? Whichever direction you want to go. Someone that's investing as an LP, find people you trust because all the deals in the world, if you're in bed with a bad person, it's completely worthless. If they take advantage of you when things are down, the greatest returns in the world are completely worthless. You know, Life's too short, number one. Number two is somebody who's on the syndication side what I'll say is it's more important to make money in life than it is to be right. You don't always need to be right. You don't always need to get your way. You don't always have to get everything you need to get. If you want to grow, just sometimes swallow hard and do what needs to get done to get a deal done. When you were on the principal side, is there an example of that where you had to swallow hard just to get the deal done then ended up making sense? There is. I had a partner, actually, who I decided wronged me, and I had to be right. And I learned this is my biggest lesson. If you can ask me what my biggest lesson in real estate was, is exactly this, which is why I'm sharing it. I decided to be into a, a disagreement, and I decided I need to be right, and I just walked away. And it was more important for me to be right, and we just separated. And over the next three years, he went on to buy a huge portfolio in the right timing, and I started again, and I didn't get that big. And I ended up selling this business, which I'm very thankful for. But thank God, three years later, he showed up at my house one day, made up with me, and we're actually buying real estate again because I learned over that period of time that it was less important to be right than it was to make money. So I learned how to make up with people and sometimes just swallow hard and then get a clear pathway to make money. Powerful. Yeah, appreciate you sharing that. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Go for it. 
All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partner. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net. All right. Best ever book you've recently read? People's Money. I'm an obsessive reader about real estate biographies. I don't believe in reading real estate how-to books and learning on the job, but I'm an obsessive reader about stories about real estate. So if you're familiar with New York, there's a building called Peter Cooper Village, Stuyvesant Town, that was bought for $5.4 billion back in 708, and then they lost the building a couple of years later, and there was a book written about that story. I think that's the last major real estate book I read, but I've read a ton of biographies and biographies. The last one I read, I think, is called Other People's Money, and basically it highlighted what happened in 2008 and how... Short people were playing with other people's money and they were buying these real estate at crazy valuations. It was a fascinating book, tremendous history of the real estate, understanding of how CMS works and how foreclosures work and how bids are getting done. Again, a lot of the stuff being in the market then and now you know they're being in the market, but it's just fascinating to read. So it's called Other People's Money. Another fascinating book I actually read as a kid. It was a book about Ian Bruce Eichner who built 1540 Broadway here in New York. It was called How a Thousand Men and Women Spent. 10 years building a tower and lost a billion dollars. Something to that effect. But just look for Ian Bruce. I, it was a powerful story. I really got into detail in New York. I mean, I'll admit it. I read books on President Trump as a kid. I read books on Trammell Crow, And I read books on the Reichen family from Olympia in New York. I am an obsessive reader of biographical real estate books. I like that approach. I think I'm going to read more biographies. What's the best ever deal you've done that we haven't talked about already? The best ever deal I did was probably a deal I bought with this partner that I was saying earlier. We bought it in a matter of four days, and it was the riskiest deal. It was actually on Memorial Day. I got a call. I was at a barbecue, and he called me. I said, listen, we have an opportunity. You got to come tomorrow morning to see this. You got to wire me money. You got to this. You got to that. And we went in there, and we just bought this small building in Brooklyn. It was a seven-unit building, and we underwrote it at a certain exit. And we did significantly better, and we sold it pretty quickly. And it was a building that just had some legal red tape that needed to be cleared out. It was a vacant building, and there was problems like everything else. Nothing works out the way it is. We went into the building. A tenant moved in illegally. We had to get the tenant out. They called the cops. All the bags of tricks we had to pull out. But ultimately, we planned to clean the red tape and sell it six months later. It took us a little bit more time. We sold it about nine months later, but we actually sold it for more money than we thought we would. And I think we made a 3X in a matter of nine months. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction we haven't talked about? On a principal side, I can tell you, thank God, nothing yet. Knock on wood, as they say. But on the debt and equity side, I had a recent mistake. I had a large deal that I was working on, and I was sitting with a client, and he gave me his word that he wasn't working with anybody else. He was working the deal really hard. And there was a lender that we were talking to, but just wasn't being as responsive as we would have liked. And get a call one day from the client, and he says, oh, by the way, I signed the deal up with that lender through another broker. And the mistake was, like, I should have been more aggressive with that lender. I tell my guys all the time, I get paid to push and to follow up. That's the key to this business. The key to business and the seat that I sit in is just push and follow up. Best ever way you like to give back? Charity is actually very, very important to me. So I give what I'd like to think is a fair amount of charity, but I can tell you that I, I give it very quietly. My most favorite type of charities to do is people really, really that cannot help themselves. I give charity for people who just can't put food on the table. I've, I've paid people's grocery bills. I've paid people's private tuition because the kids were getting thrown out of school. Just things where 
you're really at the bottom of the bucket and you're at the end of the rope and there's nobody else there. That's really where, where I enjoy most giving. But I've given so many things over the years. I really believe in that. You know, I'll tell you something else. It's my personal opinion, giving is not just charity. Giving is also time. So I always try to see when the charities I'm involved with, if I can volunteer my time as well. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing? Sure. Best way probably is via email, which is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And like Mary, be like boy, E-L, S and Sam, K-Y at easterneq.com. Not sure correctly. Or my office number is 212-897-9875. 212-897-9875. Mark, thanks for being on the show talking about the different types of ways that investors can benefit by working with a broker and how you gave some specific examples of how you've helped get transactions to the finish line when initially perhaps the finish line was not visible at the time. And also talking about the different types of asset classes and what you look for, as well as the type of sweet spot that you have with your clients. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.